All right, 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 22. Well, we saw last Sunday night that David got himself into some trouble by trying to take care of his problems his own way. And after David leaves Gath at the end of chapter 21, he decides to trust in the fact that God is for him uh, when he's afraid, instead of letting fear rule his heart. He he decides to put guards on his heart uh, from that fear by resting in what God's Word says. And thus, instead of all these deceptive plans to preserve his life, David starts letting the Lord be in charge again. So chapter 22, verse 1. David, therefore, departed from there, and he escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David, it says here, therefore, the therefore is because the king of Gath rejected him as an Israeli defector. He said, what, what use do I have for a, a madman in my house? So David, therefore, because of that, departs from Gath and escaped to the cave Adullam. He is escaping because he's back in Judah now, which isn't safe either. He is a fugitive uh, in Israel. And so he escapes to the cave uh, Adullam. Uh, Adullam was a a royal Canaanite city uh, that Joshua conquered when Israel took the promised land. It's about seven miles southeast of Gath, but 20 miles away from Saul's palace, so it's definitely a good distance away from him. And it mentions here, it just says there's a colon here, which means a pause. And and the reason it pauses here is because David was alone for a while. Eventually, his family's going to come down with him. Obviously, these other 400 men come to be with him. But prior to that, he is alone with the Lord for a while in this cave. And during that time, David composes two psalms. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. And so I want to read a couple of verses because it will give us his mindset and, and how everything is so radically different here um, when we see him start interacting with his problems again. But in Psalm 57, verses 1 and 2, we read it in our scripture reading. And I love the start of this. It says, To the chief musician, uh, Altashith, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Uh, The Altashith means it's set to a certain uh, song. So David wrote a song, but he he wrote words, but he set it to a, a song that was already in existence. And the song that's already in existence was called do not destroy. <laughs> I don't know who wrote that song, but David sets it to the Lord, you know, please don't destroy me. I've really messed up. And he starts the, the song um, by saying, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. He realizes what he has done, and he is crying out to the Lord for mercy. Now, doesn't that sound like a different David than we saw last week? 
radically different than the one we saw last week. Now he is trusting in God's grace and mercy instead of his own plans. He says, why do I need to, why am I asking you to be merciful? For my soul trusts in you. Yea, in the shadow of your wings will I make your refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performs all things for me. See, now David is standing on God's word again. What does he say? Till all these things be overpassed. Why does David know they're going to be past, you know, he's going to get past these things? Well, because God promised him he'd be king, right? He's resting in God's word again instead of his own fears. And also, I love how he says here, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performs all things for me. In other words, This is not something that happened out of the control of God. God is allowing this into my life for a purpose. And he is using this, he is doing things through this challenge. This is the same exact mentality that Paul took uh, uh, in his encouragement uh, to us when we're going through difficult times. In Romans chapter 8, 28, it says, but we know that what? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are uh, called according to his purposes, right? Well, what all things is he referring to there? You know, for example, in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, he says, um, where is it? There we go. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What are these things? What are the all things that God is working in our lives still? Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So when we read that verse and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, it's persecution, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. God is working all those things together for our good, and they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. You know, if God is for us, these things can't be against us. And so, where before David's heart had been filled with fear, now he says in Psalm 57, verse 7, I like the King James Version a little better, he says, my heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. The New King James says steadfast. But I love this idea of fixed because fixed means it is settled. It is now secured. It wasn't settled, but now it is. It wasn't, like steadfast says something's you know, firm and solid and resolute, like it's, it's always been there. But fixed means, no, no, it was broken before. Now it's fixed. It wasn't settled, but now it is. It wasn't secure, but now it is. It wasn't prepared to face these challenges, but now it is. And how did David get there? Well, that's what the other psalm he wrote tells us, Psalm 142. Psalm 142, also composed in this cave. In verses 1 and 2, David says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. See, this is where David had gotten in trouble in the beginning. When all this came down and Jonathan revealed to him, yeah, my dad wants to kill you. You got to go, man. You got to get out of here. But you're going to go in peace because the Lord's going to take care of you. 
And David, the Bible says, as they wept together because they're going to be parted, it says David carried on. He exceeded. You know, he was absolutely overwhelmed. He never brought that to the Lord. He went and took that fear-ruled heart, and he started to act on it instead of bringing it to the Lord and going, Lord, what am I going to do? Lord, this is, this is bad. He does that when he finally gets to the cave. He, I should say when he, fi- when he gets to the cave, he finally does that. In verses 5 and 7 of Psalm 142, he says, I cried unto, the Lord, unto thee, O Lord, I said, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. David finally admits that he's not strong enough to do this his way, that the Lord is the only way he's going to survive. And then in verse 7, he closes with resting on God's promises that he is going to make it through this. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. That's a different David, isn't it? I love that. And so, if you're experiencing any of those things that are in Romans 8.35, I mean, most of us are not usually experiencing nakedness, peril, or you know, the sword of things like that, but maybe you're experiencing distress. Maybe you're experiencing trouble or even persecution. If you're experiencing any of those things, know that God loves you and that you are more than a conqueror through Christ who gave himself for you. Amen? You are more than a conqueror. You will be victorious because of God's love for you. So cry out to him. Rest in the promises of his word because that's what will prepare your heart to face the challenges that are in front of you. Now, while David is in the cave fixing his heart, word of where he is reaches his family. For it says, and when his brethren and all of his father's house heard about it, they went, or heard it, they went down thither to, to him. Now, they had likely already fled their home when Saul's accusation against David became public. Remember at the feast where he threw a spear at his own son, saying that, you know, David was conspiring against the throne? Well, when word, as soon as word reached them about that, they, they probably would have fled their home because if Saul thought David wanted the throne, he would not stop until David's entire family was wiped out. Which brings up an interesting thought that David could not have known in the midst of his troubles. God had planned that David would be in the line of the Messiah, right? God knew all this, that Jesus was going to come from the line of David. If Saul wipes David and his family out, there's no longer a messianic line. It's gone. And God will never let that happen, right? And see, here's the crazy thing. I'm not in the messianic line, okay? I'm nowhere near that important. But as a child of God, you and I are part of God's larger plan. Try to remember that in the midst of your trials, even if you don't know what the larger plan is. David had no clue what that larger plan was for his family. No clue yet. He doesn't get the promise that the Messiah will come from his line until after he's king. So he has no clue about that. But recognize that even though you may not know what God's larger plan is and what your place is in that, that God has one. And therefore, God will not allow his plans to be stopped, even if you're facing something that looks like it's over for you. Now, What's interesting here is that David's family isn't the only one who comes to stay with David. Look at verse 2. 
And everyone that was in distress, the phrase everyone here actually means and all the men that were in distress and men that were in debt and men that were discontented, they gathered themselves unto him, unto David. Uh, Men who were in distress, it just means a state of trouble, affliction, suffering, persecution. It appears that David was not the only person who'd been wronged by Saul's mania, you know, his suspicious character. Apparently others had suffered at the hands of Saul as well. It also mentions here everyone that was in debt. Yeah, that's usually a troubled place. And everyone that was discontented, the word here means bitter of soul, it means mentally distressed. And they all gathered themselves together into David. David didn't summon these folks. David didn't go and put letters out saying, listen, Saul's trying to kill me. I need to put together an army to protect myself. Anybody else bitter at Saul, come on down to 5413 Adullam Cave. And, you know, I'll I'll take care of you. No, David didn't ask ask for any of these things. This just happened. Now, if you're going to start a rebellion against Saul, these are the men to do it with. I mean, these are the guys who have, they got nothing left to lose. They're in debt, so it's not like their finances are doing well. They got nothing to lose. And yet, God draws these 400 men to a man who isn't interested in revenge, to a leader whose heart is fixed now on listening to the Lord. And so it says that David became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. You know, it's interesting. David may be their captain, but he never, ever, ever leads these men against Saul. David will have a few other moments where he's not where he's supposed to be. One of the other moments where he, when he's where he's not supposed to be is when he goes with the Philistines and joins their army. And they don't usually let him fight against Israel because, well, he's an Israeli and they don't trust him. And David finally gets to a place where he is just so hopeless that he thinks there's no way I'll get back to Israel. And so he comes to the king of the Philistines and he says to him, listen, man, I'll go to war with you. And he goes, you know, you've been tr- I can trust you. There's no reason I can't trust you. You come with me. But when he gets to the staging area for the battle, all the other Philistine lords say, uh-uh, this guy's not coming with us. He'll turn on us when we fight Saul. So even then, I don't think David did it out of vengeance. I think David, you know, and he never ended up fighting Saul. He never led these men against Saul. Uh, but even then, I think it wasn't so much he was angry. It's just he didn't know what else to do. And that, of course, doesn't end well because, well, you have to stick around for First Samuel to find out. But back to here. David and these men that he leads, they start off as a band of men just seeking to survive. And what they become, though, is what David had always been, what he'd always done with men under his care. They became defenders of the nation of Israel against their enemies. David never raises his hand against Saul. Now, if 400 men could figure out where David was, then so could Saul. And so David decides to put some distance between his family and the king. Verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray you, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Do not abide in the hold. Depart and get you into the land of Judah. Well, then David departed and came into the forest of 
Herath. So David and his men, his 400 men with his family, they flee to Moab, the country of Moab. Uh, Mizpah is about 50 miles southeast of Adullam on the other side of the Dead Sea. So this is nowhere in Saul's area of control. And why does David go to Moab with his family? Well, remember, David's got Moabite blood in him. Ruth was a Moabite, so David had family ties in that nation. Saul had defeated Moab years earlier in his rampage to secure his kingdom after God told him that he was rejected as king. So, but they weren't at war at this point in time, so it's possible David thought this was the safest place for his family and for his men. And, and some might say, well, isn't this the same problem as when David fled to Gath? He left Israel to go to the land of the Philistines? No, no, no. This is not the same at all, because notice the different way that David handles this one. There's no deception in any way, shape, or form. In fact, David is painfully honest with the king. It says, he, he said, um, let my father and mother, I pray you, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. In other words, David doesn't make the king of Moab any promises, and he doesn't pretend to have a plan. He says, I don't know what the Lord's going to do with me. He makes it clear that he's trusting God for the next step, but he doesn't know what that next step is. Thankfully, it comes in verse 5. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold. Now, this is our first meeting with the, the prophet named Gad. We are not told much about him. He just kind of pops in and out of David's life from time to time. Uh, he is a frequent advisor to David. It is possible that Gad was a part of Samuel's school of prophets. Uh, Samuel is quite old at this point uh, and cannot make the journey to Moab, the long trip there. So it's possible that's why God sends Gad, and that's how him and David form this relationship. I don't know. But his message is clear. You cannot sit down here. David, you're not meant to sit down right now. That's what the word abide means. We're going to see it numerous times in this chapter. You are not to sit down. You cannot sit down. So depart from here. You must leave and get yourself into the land of Judah. And the word there for hold means the fortress. So they were staying there in the walled city where the king of Moab lived. And basically, God is telling them, God's plan isn't for you to do nothing in a fortress, David, to sit back and just wait. You're an Israeli soldier. Go back to your homeland and fulfill your duties. And David obeys. He obeys. Again, how very different from chapter 1. Instead of running from danger with no direction, like David did before, David now follows God's leading into danger. What a difference it makes when your heart is fixed, right? <laughs> now, we're not quite sure where the forest of Hereth is. Most believe it's about two miles north of the city of Ziph, which is in central Judah, just west of the Dead Sea. It's pretty far south of Saul's palace, but of course, Israel is not a large land. And so, David's, news of David's doings, they finally do reach Saul in verse 6. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 6. And when Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men that were with him, and then we have a little side here, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto those servants, these men that were around him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that ye all of you have conspired against me? And there is none that shows me that my son has made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me or shows unto me that my son is... And then, you know, he's just babbling now. 
I mean, he goes here, he says, none of you shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Now, I don't know about you, but when Saul's holding spears, I usually get a little worried. So his men are all around him, and he's just going off. Why have you all betrayed me? You know, yeah, why didn't any of you tell me that my son made a covenant with David? Why, why are none of you feeling sorry for me, concerned about me and all my troubles? And, and how come all of you haven't warned me about the ambush that's happening today from David? Man has lost his mind. Back up in verse 6. When Saul heard that David was discovered, when Saul heard that others knew this information before he did, others knew where David was before he did. We will get to Saul's reaction in a moment, but first we need to establish where he's at. For it mentions that he's abode. Again, that word sit down. He's just brooding. He is brooding under a tree. The um, tree is a tamarisk tree. They have them in Israel. There's these large shady trees, uh, very common resting places in Israel because you want to get shade over there. Uh, I just talked to someone the other day who was uh, there um, before the year before COVID during summer, and they always say, don't go over there in summer. It's just, it's too hot. And so they, they hang out. They didn't have AC back then, so they hang out, hung out under these trees for uh, coolness and for shade. And it mentions it's in Ramah. That's the same word as Samuel's hometown, but it's written slightly differently in the Hebrew here. And so this way, it just means it's a, a big, huge hill. So he's up on this hill. He's got his spear in his hand. And remember, Saul's constantly suspicious. He always saw threats around him. And I love what David Guzik said. He said, when Saul had a spear in his hand, it usually meant he was going to try to hurt somebody. And so this is not a, a happy meeting, Okay. You know, he has called his official staff, all of his captains, all of, all of his, you know, important VIPs in the government, and he's called them, and he's got a spear out, which means somebody's going to get hurt. He's not happy. He says, I know where David is, and how come none of you told me? And Saul said to his servants that stood about him, here now, you Benjamites, that's interesting, because that means Saul didn't trust anyone outside his tribe. He had rewarded only his tribal countrymen with high positions in his kingdom. No one from any of the other tribes. He calls them all Benjamites. Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make all of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? The word here, conspired, means to rise up in a planned, coordinated rebellion. And on what basis does he make this accusation? Three pieces of evidence. First, he says, none of you informed me about Jonathan's covenant with David. None of you have showed me that my son is in a league with David. The word there shows means to uncover or to reveal. How, how come you didn't tell me about this, that he, he cut a covenant with David? Now, since none of Saul's staff informed Saul of this covenant, that means Jonathan's the only one who could do so, Right? That's the only way Saul could become aware of this, is if Jonathan or David told him. And we know David didn't tell him. So the Bible doesn't tell us how Jonathan told David, that told Saul this, but my guess is that when Jonathan returned from giving the bad news to David without David in custody, Saul probably demanded, why'd you let him go? Jonathan probably told his father, I made a promise. And unlike you, Dad, I don't break my promises. The second accusation, or second piece of evidence is he says, 
None of you feel sorry for me. Or <laughs> there means to feel grief, anxiety, or concern. None of you are worried about me. None of you feel bad for me. None of you concerned for the danger I'm in. What danger are you in, Saul? You know, the word narcissist is thrown around way too much these days, but Saul is the real deal. Narcissism is defined as this, a personality of selfishness involving a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, and a need for admiration. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) I mean, he is so needy, and he doesn't see anything around him. He doesn't perceive any of the hurts around him. All he has is thoughts for himself. Now, this statement, my second piece of evidence is, none of you feel bad for me. That is a manipulative means of communication. That's an unacceptable form of communication for a Christian. And when we do exercise that type of communication, it grieves the Holy Spirit. In Exodus, or in Exodus, in Ephesians chapter four, it tells us, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The the idea of let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. All of our communication should always be pure, undefiled by manipulation. It should never be corrupted, perverted, twisted. It should never be different than, like I shouldn't be saying one thing but mean something else. Never. That should never happen in my communication. You know, if David has a fixed heart in this chapter, Saul's is a broken down heart still. Because of his stubborn decision to maintain his way of doing things, to never repent, he is stuck in this state of selfishness. His third charge is the most ridiculous of all. He says, and none of you shows to me, none of you has uncovered, revealed, you knew about this plan, but none of you has revealed it to me, that my servant, he's referring to David, uh, that that my son has stirred up uh, uh, my servant. So Jonathan has stirred up David against me to lie in wait, to set an ambush as at this day. There is an ambush happening. Do you even care there's an ambush happening today? I had to come and bring you around me. None of you told me about it. If this was true, that all these other men knew about the ambush and didn't tell him, why on earth does Saul believe they won't just kill him now? These are ridiculous reasons for Saul's accusation. David isn't planning an ambush. And why would they be concerned for a man who's never been in any danger from David? Well, despite this reality, someone's going to get a spear in the face if one of them doesn't speak up. And so Doeg takes the opportunity to gain favor and to deflect Saul's ire elsewhere. Look at verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Remember, we saw him earlier in chapter 21. He saw David when David was lying to Ahimelech, right, to get help from Ahimelech. He saw that all go down. And it says, then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, 
All of this is true except for one very important part. Verse 10, Doeg says he saw Ahimelech inquire of the Lord for David. In other words, to seek direction from God about what to do through the use of the umim and the thumim, urim and the thumim. Now, we don't know what these two things were. We know they were part of the high priest's garb. Some people believe that they were a black stone and a white stone, and that was how you said, hey, Lord, do you want us to go and do this? And if you pulled out the white stone, the answer was yes. Pulled out the black stone, the answer was no. I don't know if that's the case. However, um, whatever the Urim and the Thummim was, that's, how, that's the idea of how it was used. You'd ask a question, and based on which one was pulled out, whatever they were, I can tell you what they weren't. They weren't funky glasses that were used to translate Reformed Egyptian into the Book of Mormon. That's for sure. But whatever they were, that's what they were used for, to say yes or no. And so basically, Doeg is accusing Ahimelech of, 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 of treachery, that you, he consulted with you about his problem. He consulted with Ahimelech about his problems with you, and Ahimelech helped him out, told him what the Lord wanted him to do to escape your hand. Now, Ahimelech, we have no record of him doing this for David, But again, accusing Ahimelech of doing so was tantamount to treachery, which to Saul means, well, then Ahimelech must know where David is. But when Saul hears this, he doesn't just summon the high priest. He summons every priest from the city of Nob. Look at verse 11. It says, then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and that's opposed to Ahitub, And all of his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. Eighty-five men came to see the king. And Saul said, Here now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. So Ahimelech being respectful. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and you have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day? You've counseled about how to ambush me today. Why'd you do this? Why'd you betray me? Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who is so faithful among all, the, all your servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Why wouldn't I help David? I had no reason to think that you guys were having issues. The word there, interestingly enough, when he says, who goes at your bidding, the word there, bidding, is a very interesting word in Hebrew. It means an elite soldier who is devoted to protect the life of their king. He says, King Saul, you're asking me why I would help David. Who's like David? I mean, David is, he's like your personal bodyguard. I mean, He's the one you trust more than anybody. You know, he, he's the one who is your own son-in-law. You know, he's the most honorable person in all your house. Why wouldn't I help him? And there is a sense, too, where Ahimelech is saying, Saul, you're, you're wrong about David. He's not conspiring against you. He doesn't want to ambush you. He told me he was working for you. He is loyal and trustworthy, and he has protected you the entire time he's been in your service, distinguishing himself above everyone else under your command. Why would I have any reason to doubt he was nothing but loyal to you? And then he points out the discrepancy. He goes, yeah, I gave him bread. I gave him the sword. But did I then begin to inquire of God for him? 
Ahimelech denies this charge. He never gave David access to the Urim and the Thummim. David may be a good man, but he's not the king. He says, be it far from me. I did not do that. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant. Let not the king make a legal accusation against his servant. That's not, that's not, you've done wrong to accuse us of this. You know, nor to all the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. I don't know anything about an ambush. And less or more means uh, small or significant. I don't know anything about any problems you have with David, and I certainly don't know anything about an ambush. Whatever the problem you have with David has nothing to do with me or my family. But Saul... He doesn't see it that way. And despite the fact that all these problems that are in his heart, the reason he's suspicious, started from his suspicious heart, despite that fact, he actually convinces himself that David and Ahimelech and all the priests are the ones who are in the wrong. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die. It is doubled in the Hebrew, which means, so I've already brought legal charges. This isn't this wasn't, this wasn't me talking to you. This was a trial, and I've already found you and your entire family guilty. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood around him, turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. Even if you didn't consult the Urim and the Thummim, doesn't matter. You knew more, you knew enough that you should have told me about this and you didn't. You're traitors. Now, Saul is asking these footmen, the word there means message runners. These are the lowest ranking soldiers in the army. It's not that they're not soldiers, but these are not, they're not executioners, they're not bodyguards. These are message runners. These are probably very young men who, who are, are, you know, for, you know, just new to the army, and, and, and their basic, you know, function is to run messages for all these aides who are here, all these councilmen who are here, all these high-ranking officials. And Saul says, turn, which means surround them, encircle them, and kill all the priests of the Lord. Now, this is absolute madness. And, and given the king's demonic fits… <laughs> The messengers, it says, the servants of the king, they would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Knowing the king's demonic fits, they they refuse to listen. No, we're not going to kill God's priests. So Saul decides to turn to the one man who'd been loyal to him in this meeting. Verse 18, and the king said to Doeg, you turn, which is, again, just a really awkward statement. You surround them. How is one guy going to surround 85 people? You surround them. And fall upon the priests. I'm not sure how Saul expected one man to surround a group, but this is just another sign of his frenzied rage. He's not making any sense because nothing he's doing makes any sense. And you know, when I'm not honest enough with myself to see I'm acting selfish and foolish, there is nothing that can be done for me. When I'm not honest with myself, nothing. Some of the most important moments in life are when you realize what's coming out of your mouth or you see your actions and you stop and say to yourself, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> that's, that's wrong. Like, that's foolish. That doesn't make any sense. Because that's the first step to repentance. You know, I've been married for, to be 25 years this July. And when we first got married, I said a lot of stupid things and didn't realize how dumb they were. 
But it's funny how we fight now. There'll be times when things are getting a little heated, some intense fellowship. We don't argue. <laughs> We're having some intense fellowship. And uh, I'll say something, and she'll look at me, and I'll just start laughing. Because I'm like, that was, that was really, that was unintelligent. <laughs> I was like, that was unfair, wrong, just absolutely absurd. I am making no sense. I am sorry. Will you please forgive me? Because that's the first step to, to making things right. It's the first step to getting a fixed heart instead of remaining broken down. You know, we, we treat certain things like a disease today, and I, and I do think that some things are, but narcissism is not a disease or a mental disorder. Narcissism is a sinful mindset that needs to be repented of. But because Saul is nowhere near that point, he not only does this wicked thing, for it says, Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day 85 persons that wore linen ephod. Killed 85 priests. Not only does Saul do that wicked thing, but he goes 10 steps farther into evil. Look at verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, he smote with the edge of the sword both men and women children and nursing babies and oxen and donkeys and sheep. All of them he smote with the edge of the sword. Now, we've read about that behavior before when God sent Israel to deal with the Canaanites, right? It, when that was done to a city, it was called being dedicated to the ban. A city was dedicated to the ban. In other words, no spoils could be taken and no one was spared because the city was irreparable. There was, God had given them 400 years to repent, 400 years of reasoning with them, and there was no other option available. They would not change. That's how Saul treats Nob. He actually tells his soldiers that this city is dedicated to the ban. It is dedicated to destruction because of how evil it is. He killed all of God's servants under the guise that God commanded them to do so because the city had become too wicked because that's the only way he was able to convince his soldiers to do such a heinous deed. Now, this shows us just how unimportant Saul viewed a relationship with God. Because if there are no priests, how is Israel going to be in a right relationship with God? How is any Israeli going to have a relationship with God if there's no one who can make the offerings, if there's no one who can be the mediator between God and men? There is a sense in this chapter where both the messianic line and the high priestly line are under threat. And in doing so, Saul becomes a tool of Satan used for the purpose of nullifying God's plan and God's promises. Now, while that sounds ominous, here's the good news. You can't nullify God's plans and God's promises. That's impossible. He's God. He's all-powerful. He knows the end from the beginning. No one's ever getting the drop on God. And thus, at least one prince, oh, prince, priest slips out of Saul's grasp. Look at verse 20. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. Why does he go to find David? Well, he's as much a fugitive as David, as David and all his men are now. I mean, where else is he going to find anyone who'll take him in? 
And when Abiathar finds David, the news he delivers devastates David because David knows this is largely his fault. Look at verse 22. And David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. This is my fault. Now, back up for a second. David, when he hears this news, he says, I knew it that day when I saw when Doeg the Edomite was there. The word there, knew, means I noticed. I noticed that Doeg was there. Remember, David's one of the highest ranking officials in the government. He knows all of Saul's leaders. He recognized Doeg. He says, when I did all this, when I lied to your dad, I saw him. And then look at what David says here. I knew that he would surely tell Saul. The phrase there, surely tell, is again a Hebrew word that is doubled for emphasis. In other words, David, when he looked over, saw Doeg, saw that Doeg saw him, as he's lying to Ahimelech, he was convinced that this is what would happen, that Saul would get them somehow. Wait, 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 wait. David knew all the time that he was lying to Ahimelech that Saul would find out and do something like this. Maybe not exactly this, but something like this. Yep. And he lied anyway. And so after he lets that settle in, he says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. That word occasion, it's the same word for turn when Saul gave the order to kill the priests. He says, Abiathar, Doeg might have wielded the sword, but I'm the one who surrounded him and murdered him. This is my fault. Now, that is heavy. And that's something that David would carry with him for the rest of his life. But I will say this. What a difference between David and Saul when they are confronted with their sin. David doesn't kind of go, oh, wow, man, that's just, that's just too bad. Don't know how that happened. No. David confesses his sin to this man who, he says, it's my fault your dad's dead. It's my fault all your, your family's dead. I knew, I knew something like this would happen. I mean, I know, maybe I didn't know exactly this would happen, but I knew something like this would happen. I knew Saul would take vengeance against your family. I knew he'd do something. And this is why David is a man after God's heart. He understands what God wants. He doesn't try to color his sin to be more pretty. He doesn't try to blame others or scoot around his sin to make it less ugly. And this is why it's so important to fix your heart when you feel afraid. Because these are the kinds of devastating things that happen when we decide to let fear or selfishness rule our hearts. Others get hurt. So please don't do that. You got something going on that's really frightening you right now. Bring your heart to the Lord. You know, take those thoughts captive. Put a guard in your heart through God's word and God's peace like we talked about last week so that you don't bring that type of hurt through foolish decisions that you make when you're afraid. You might be saying, well, Pastor, well, what do I do if I've already made bad decisions like this? What if I've already brought harm to others because 
I didn't let God's word rule my heart and guard my heart and God's peace guard my heart. Well, David can't go back in time and bring all these people back to life. You cannot go back and change any of that. But you can bring your heart to the Lord and fix it so that you can make good decisions going forward. Look at what David does in verse 23. David says, abide thou with me. Remember that word abide, it means to sit down, rest. He says, Abiathar, find rest here. You're gonna be okay here. You're gonna be safe here. And don't fear. Don't make the same mistake I made. For he that seeks my life seeks your life. How could Abiathar know that God would take care of him after everything else that's happened? No. Because being with David was the safest place to be right now. Because God's not going to let Saul kill David because God made David a promise. And so he tells Abiathar the lesson he learned. The same man who is powerless to kill me, even though our situation looks really bad, he will not be able to kill you if you are with me. David encourages this heartbroken, terrified man with the truth he learned from his own troubles. If you have made a bad decision in the past, the first thing you need to do is determine to comfort others who are going through the fear that you went through so they don't make the same mistake. To comfort them in the same way you've received comfort from the Lord. And then second, the second thing you need to do is do whatever it is, whatever is in your power to fix the situation you brought about. Look at what David says at the end. He says, but with me, you shall be in safeguard. The phrase there, in safeguard, means to make it your mission to guard or protect someone. He says, Abiathar, I treated your family with selfishness and with deception. I'm, I commit to you right now, I will not do that with you. I will make sure you're protected. I will put you before myself. And you know, that's what repentance looks like. <laughs> that's what repentance looks like. The word repentance means to change your mind, to turn around. And a repentant heart, that's what a fixed heart looks like too. So let's all stand. David cried out, be merciful. And when he got to the cave, be merciful unto me, O Lord. Don't destroy me. I have messed up big time. One prophet would say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David said, I can't do this on my own. I need you to take me somewhere that's above any place I can get to on my own. You're the only one that, I can, that can lead me to safety. If your heart is overwhelmed tonight, Run to the Lord. Let him lead you to a safe place. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you for the promises that you give us in your word that we can know what your heart is towards us and what you will do for us. And Lord, you see every person who's here tonight, you know what they're going through. You know if they're experiencing trouble or distress or persecution or maybe even facing famine or nakedness or peril. Lord, you know if our hearts are overwhelmed, and so I pray for every dear brother and sister here tonight that you would lead them to a rock that is higher than them. Lord, as they cry out to you and ask for your mercy, lead them to solid ground. 
Lead them to a safe place. You be the one who will keep them in safeguard, Lord, for you have already shown to us that you are the one who puts us before yourself. You proved that on the cross. And Lord, we thank you for that promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. That if you gave your life for us, how shall you not freely give us all things? So we love you, Lord, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.